You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. 1 through 17. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you'd rather have a hard copy of the scriptures, you can find one um, under a seat around you. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And um, since it is lengthier today, I just want to remind you that just as we incline our ear to the word, um, let's incline our hearts to the word as well. And so um, if you guys would, once you're there, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word if you are able? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So glad, especially if it is your first time, we just want to say welcome. Thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Um, man, what a sacred text I have the responsibility and honor to talk about this morning. It's really almost impossible to overstate the importance of this story in the biblical narrative. And so I'm going to do my best. It's really all of chapter three, but I'm going to do my best with these 17 verses 
to try and unpack what's going on here. If you have not been with us over the course of the last uh, two chapters, you can check out the podcast and kind of how Exodus has led us to this point uh, so far in the storyline and that obviously the children of Israel are under uh, Egyptian slavery and Moses here having been exiled because of his uh, murder of one of the taskmasters, the Egyptian taskmasters. He's now exiled with his father-in-law Jethro. He's a grown man. He's a married man. He already has a son and he's out with the flock and, and we pick up the story here as uh, Corey's sermon last week kind of left off with the Bible telling us God heard the groans of Israel. He saw their affliction. He knew exactly at the very heart of hearts their suffering, and he decided to act. Well, now in chapter 3, we see him acting. This is God's first step, first action he's going to take to respond to the suffering of Israel. So before we jump in, though, I would love to pray. Please pray with me. I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads. Father, the words that we have to cover today, it it just, it's too wonderful for me. The truth about who you are. We ask now humbly, I ask, Lord, that you might miraculously reveal yourself as you did to Moses through your word. Help us to see here. And hear here and feel here that which you designed and purposed this story to accomplish in our hearts. Lord, I want to pray the words of Jesus to you now. Would you give us eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know you. As you stand forth from this text. Let that not just be head knowledge that we're leaving with, but something altogether unique and different. And in so doing that we might not only feel the weight and the gravity of what it means to be your children, but also the joy that comes along with that, the peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, you know where we all are and all of our stories uniquely. So meet us here, we ask for this handful of minutes that we have together in your presence. We ask you to meet us, and we pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to read verses 1 through 6 here. Let's, let's kind of go through this. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. He could just put a star there. We're coming back here because Horeb, the mountain of God, is going to be a major player, major factor in the story of Exodus. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
So this is the moment that God will begin to act in power to bring his people out of bondage. But the most important question that I think these first six verses answers is how does God choose to act when he hears the suffering and the plight of his people? And the answer is he acts first by revealing himself to Moses. This is lesson number one from this chapter, which is that all of God's actions in human and redemptive history, whether it's our own story or the grand meta-narrative story, all has one central aim, and that is that God wants to reveal himself as he truly is to us. So if, if in our lives we are hurting, suffering, crying out to God, God's primary purpose is to reveal himself to us, and it's through that primary purpose that he will also, by his mercy, work for our good and his glory. And there will be many secondary blessings that come from that, but the central is to know God. In fact, God's gonna continue to reiterate this to Moses as he talks with Moses through the plagues. He's gonna tell him that all of these actions that he's taking against Egypt have a singular purpose, and they are that the nations, that Pharaoh, that the Israelites might know that I am the Lord. He wants them to know him. And so that's why he's taking these actions in the Exodus. And it all starts here in chapter three with God revealing himself to Moses in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, one guy keeping his father-in-law's flock. You know, I love that his name's Jethro because it's like, man, can't you like jive with that? You have a family member named Jethro too, probably. (laughs) And that's this story. Now, we have a lot of movies that kind of follow this same pattern. I want to make the case that they follow this pattern. Uh, they're movies that we love, by the way, because in the meta narrative of scripture, there's these archetypal moments that kind of lay the groundwork for us to piggyback on the story of God. And therefore we, we create other books and novels and movies and stories that people really uh, grab onto. And, and this is kind of the archetype. It's where the main character is in this kind of ordinary situation and then they're introduced to some hidden reality that changes everything. So example would be like the children in the Chronicles of Narnia are in a very ordinary sense uh, in the middle of a war, World War II, kind of mostly plight. Lucy finds herself playing hide-and-go-seek, an ordinary children's game, and she backs up into the wardrobe and keeps taking steps back, back, back until she's into what? She falls into Narnia. Now everything's changed. There's a whole other world she didn't know existed. And this is the catalyst for seven books of great fantasy stories. And the children, even when they come back to real life, they can't live real life normal anymore because this other life exists and it changes everything. This is the same with like the Matrix, right? You get Neo, who's just a pencil pusher, works in a cubicle, until Morpheus shows up. What does he say? He offers him what? The two pills. Take the blue, everything stays the same. You wake up, or you take the red. And what does he say? See how far the rabbit hole goes or whatever he says. And of course, then he comes out of the matrix, realizes there's a whole other reality that he was actually in a false sense of reality. And that, that comment, see how far the rabbit hole goes, well, that's, that's hearkening back to what? Alice in Wonderland. Because how does she get into Wonderland, right? She chases the rabbit to the hole, and then she wants to get the rabbit and falls down the rabbit hole into Wonderland. I can go on with this. The secret garden, Mary finds the door. Harry Potter finds the wizarding world at platform nine and three quarters, right? The Wizard of Oz Dorothy is taken into the land of Oz through a tornado. Of course, Frodo's changed by what? Just the ring itself. There's always these events that are tied to this, but the central theme is this, is that these main characters are never the same once they have this interaction. They're never the same 
once they have this moment. And I want to make the case and contend that all of these stories, they jive with us at a visceral level and we love them because they are the story. Or maybe a better way of putting that is that what jives with us in those stories is what is in the story fundamentally here. Because Moses isn't, this isn't the first time we see God do this. He does it with Abraham. He does it maybe most prominently with Jacob, right? How does he do it with Jacob? Jacob, in his moment of plight, sends his entire family, all of his flocks across the river to meet up with his brother Esau because he's afraid Esau will kill him. He's alone on one side of the river, and in his moment of plight, God shows up to wrestle Jacob and wrestles with Jacob all night until he prevails and gives him a new name. You see this also even in the New Testament, just so you don't think this is an Old Testament thing. A man named Cephas is called by the Lord Jesus as a fisherman. Cephas goes fishing with the Lord. The Lord basically permits Cephas to be frustrated by his fishing. He doesn't catch anything until the Lord tells him to let down the nets. He fills the nets until the boat sinks. Cephas falls on his knees and says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. I have no business being in your presence. God says, your name is Peter. And everything's different for old Cephas. So if you've ever wondered in your suffering or in your hardship, and I know there are varying levels and degrees for all of us, but if we've ever wondered, does God hear me? Does he know? Does he see? Will he act? We have to first be reminded what the scripture teaches us about how God acts. And he acts first and foremost on our behalf by revealing himself to us which means that one of our questions should not always be, is he removing the circumstance, but how's he revealing himself? And we might say something like, that's not what I asked for, right? And, and listen, that's kind of funny, but depending upon how difficult you've had it, it's kind of not funny, right? It's like if you just like are looking for that extra promotion and you're like, I just want that extra promotion, and then God doesn't give that to you and he teaches you something, well, then it's kind of funny that you're like, I'm asking for the job. I, like, God, I really want to go on a date with you, but I really want the job. And that's kind of funny because God's like, well, I want you to know me. But it's really difficult if we're talking about the, the deeper parts of suffering in life, right? Like when it really hurts and you're asking for this and God's saying, yeah, but I want you to know me. That's a difficult situation. It's a difficult ask of you for faith. We see this in the oldest book of the Bible. Job is a righteous man who suffers not because of anything that he's done. In fact, the Bible might even indicate that he suffers because he's righteous. I say this because God actually has a conversation with Satan, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? He's very, very righteous, kind of like offering him up. And the story of Job centers on Job never really kind of understanding quite why he was going through this suffering, except that God desired to reveal himself in the whirlwind to Job, so that even though Job was restored sevenfold at the end of his life, it, that's not why Job was better off in the end, because you still lose family, children, belongings. You can't get those back. The reason Job was better off in the end is because God revealed himself to Job. He got God. That's the heart of the story of Job. Now, what am I getting at? For God to act in our lives is for God to reveal himself. And for God to reveal himself to us is for us to never be the same. This is fundamental. It's what it means to be Christian. Christianity is not merely an intellectual assent to new ideas about God. Yes, your life and mind will be changed, but it's not primarily an assent to new ideas. Christianity is not merely a commitment to change your behavior, meaning I know that God is right and I'm wrong and I'm going to change and do better. 
Yes, your behaviors will change, but it's not primarily about that. Christianity is not merely a code of ethics that you sign on to, although we know we have the law of God. No, to be Christian is for God to reveal himself to us as he truly is. And when he does, we're changed forever. We can't go back. It doesn't mean that we won't fall back into our former behaviors. Certainly, we will. It means that now, when we do, we can't go back to how it was before, searing our conscience, because now we know. It didn't matter now, which is why if Neo went back to the matrix, he couldn't not know it, that it was not real, and so he was changed forever. He was ruined for that life, because now he has a new one. That's what it means to be Christian. You see, sin doesn't have, even though you're enticed by it, it doesn't have its pleasantness. It's been ruined for you because you've met the real thing. You've met God. I always use the example of ramen noodles are delicious until you've had filet mignon. If you're a vegetarian, then, you know, beyond burger or whatever. <laughs> you've been ruined for it now. Jesus tells Nicodemus this in John 3. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, lest you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom. This is Jesus' words for what it means for us to have a Moses-like experience with the burning bush. It's like a born again, your whole life is new. Everything about what you thought life was has now been changed, transformed. You're a new creation is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. To know God, to meet him, to see him as he is, is a life-changing event. Not just life-changing, it's earth-shattering. You can't go back to it as it was. And you might think, okay, Cor, but get on with it. It's not a trivial detail. This is core. It's core because humanity's plight can't be fixed with mere philosophical debate. Humanity's plight can't be fixed with medical or technological advances. It can't be fixed with governmental realignment. There's no class that we could take that could inform us enough to fix what's wrong. There's no medicine we could take to heal the deepest parts of our soul. Yes, there's medicine that might help the superficial and thank God for it, but there's no medicine that we can take that'll get deep enough into the metaphysical. There's no conditioning program that we could go work out and figure out how to make us less like we are at the soul level. And the reason is because we're not dealing with merely material problems in the earth. We're dealing with something entirely other. And so because we're dealing with something entirely other, we need God who is entirely other to come in and change it. We need something from outside of what we are to reveal himself. You see, our problem is that we've been blinded from seeing from knowing and from hearing God. We've been cut off because of sin from the very source of life, so we're fumbling around in the dark trying to make sense. And hear me on this, friends. A lot of bad things happen in the dark when you can't see. You run into your neighbor and they fall over, then they're angry and they swing and hit the guy next to you, and then you bite an ankle of someone while you're on the ground just to try to get up because they're trampling you, and there's lots of things in turmoil going on. And unless someone turns the lights on, it just starts to kind of ripple out in the crowds. And so Egypt is that land of darkness, and now Moses meets the light. Before God's going to bring out his people from Egypt, he's going to reveal himself to a man named Moses. Because why? Because God is rich in mercy. He hears our cries, and he responds. And he doesn't give us always what we think that we need or what we want. He gives us what we actually need and much more. We have to start this text, and, I, and I'm, I'm getting into the meat of it here, which will be, it's, it's kind of, 
unfathomable. But before I get there, I have to say this. There is no greater gift that God could ever give us than himself. At the heart of the gospel, yes, are we given forgiveness of sins? Absolutely. Are we given justification before God to be made righteous? Yes. Are we given a new hope and a new future in eternity? Absolutely. Are we welcomed in, adopted into the family of God? Yes, I could continue on. But at its very core, the gospel is that we get God. That's the gift. Genesis 1 and 2, we get God in the garden, communion with him. He's the central gift from which every of the fountains flow. We just sang it. Come now, fount of every blessing. All of the blessings, all of the greatness that flows from one head, and that is that we get God as he actually is, and that's the gift. And we go from exile, and now we're welcomed in. That's the gift of the gospel. So when I, when I get through this, and, I, and I'm, I'm telling this story about how God reveals himself, I want you to catch this. What I'm talking about here is the central gift that God offers. Every other good gift is, is like a branch from this trunk, which is who he is, and he's about to reveal himself to us. Okay, so how does he do so? Let's read verses 7 through 17. Then the Lord said, now I want you guys to pick up on this. Remember Corey's sermon from last week. God said that he, that he heard, he saw, he knew, and he's going to act. Now watch, he, he uses all that language right here. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land, to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and with honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God is not alienated from our desires that are material. It's just that those material desires, their fulfillment, find their, we find that fulfillment in him. So we can't get the material fulfillment that we deeply desire placed there by God unless we get him. Does this make sense? We don't get the garden without the God of the garden. And so he's not saying that, the, that, that wanting the garden doesn't matter at all. No, he put that desire in us. He's saying, but we can't get one without the other. You don't get the stream unless you have the fountain. You don't get the branches and the fruit on the branches unless you have the trunk and its root system. God is the core. Okay, continue. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppress, oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come and I will send, to, send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You got to love Moses' response here. It's very, very relatable. Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, oftentimes I'm like, Moses, you're talking to God, like get over it. And and until you actually survey your own heart, I think it's easy to say that. I would have felt the exact same way. There's Pharaoh who considers himself the God of, of this world. And then there's little old Moses just, you know, out there with Jethro's sheep. I love God's response because this is where you, you know, a lot of um, our modern sermons take a turn and we start quoting all the promises in the New Testament. You are highly favored, truly blessed, a snowflake for God, a, you know, a king and a prince and a princess of the king, you know, all those things. And all those things are true, but notice what God does here. He does something a little bit different. He actually doesn't even talk about Moses at all. He doesn't say like, Moses, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. Like you stutter some, but not much. It's not too bad. I can work with this. We can do hooked on phonics. He doesn't do that. Listen to God's response. He said, but I will be with you. That's it. I'll be with you. 
this is setting the stage for how he's about to reveal himself because he's giving you a little bit. Moses, you are a contingent being and I am the creator God. You are in need, dependent, desperate. I am the God who provides. Moses says, I can't do that. And God says, but I can. And I will, and I'll be with you. The promise here is that that God will be with Moses, meaning that if he weren't, this would go poorly. And all of human history goes poorly when we don't know and commune with him. And that's the idea. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about God revealing himself here. Because the first way that he does it is in the burning bush. The bush that is on fire but yet not consumed. And listen, that's not because God's like in the desert so he has like you know, limited tools. It's like, well, I don't have much to work with. Let's do the bush. That's not how this works. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 29, it says, our God is a consuming fire. This is regularly analogous. It's words that are used Old and New Testament to describe God. And it's meant to describe him in his holiness. No man can stand in the presence of God without a mediator. No man can defend himself in the sight of God. No man, no human being can experience the very holiness and fullness of God's presence and not die. This is continually reiterated throughout the Old Testament. So much so that the high priest himself used to wear a belt with a little bell around it so that as he walked into the Holy of Holies, in case he had not done what God told him to do and they stopped hearing the jingling of the bell, they would pull his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. That's what it looked like. And here we see, well, maybe it's important to say this, unless God graciously permits us into his presence, we don't have a lot of hope. And right here, we see God's response to that by showing himself to Moses in a bush that is burning and yet not consumed. The the message to Moses here is, I intend to bring you into my presence, make you my people, commune with you, and graciously permit that you not be destroyed. I plan to make a way that you might commune with me again and not disintegrate in my presence. That's the burning bush that's on fire but not consumed. Later in the prophets, the prophets actually say that Israel is like a bramble. It's like a bush. You are going to be a light to the nations. They will see you like Moses saw a burning bush that was on fire, not consumed, and everyone will turn aside to see this great sight. They will see the holy fire of the one true God in the people and in the midst of the people, and yet they're not destroyed, and they will say, we must see this great sight. Then he calls him by name, which just reiterates that God not only knows Egypt's plight, but knows Moses uniquely. He knows him personally. He says his name twice because it's a term of endearment and intimacy. Jesus will do this over and over in the New Testament. He will say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. He'll say things like, Martha, Martha, why is it you are so anxious and troubled about many things? It's a term of endearment. The God of the universe knows this little shepherd by name. And then finally, Moses asks a question that I think is central to this story and I think is it provokes a response that will change the world. He says this, verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? 
Now, we pass this off as like, okay, he's asking for his name, no big deal. No. He's asking him for his name because Moses grew up in a land of darkness filled with false gods, with many names that many temples were erected to, that they did much sacrifice to in order to appease the gods and see their act their actions. And you might find this to be trivial in our very uh, secularized materialist world that we live in. And yet we see in the Bible that the magicians of Pharaoh who served these false gods, they also had some power. They also could turn the Nile, for instance, from water to blood. They also could turn a wooden stick into a snake and then back into a stick. They also could turn a hand leprous and then make it clean. They were serving false gods and those false gods had names like the god Adumrah. They worshiped these gods, and God is going to distinguish himself from them. But this is the moment where Moses asks, give me your name so I can distinguish you. And God takes exception to this comment. And he responds, and I I would ask you, search search any sacred text of any world religion and find an answer like this. He looks at Moses and says, I am who I am. Notice, not I am one God among many whom you can name. I am who I am. Don't put me in a category with all of these other gods. There is me and then there is no other. God wants Moses to know even before he gives him his name, his name's not I am. He's going to tell him his name. He wants him to know first who he is. And he says, I am, I exist. Another way to uh, translate this would be, I will be who I will be. Or I absolutely am. Everything else is contingent. Maybe say it like this. Because God is, you are. (laughs) Because God is, the universe exists. Because God is, we breathe air. Because God is, everything else can be. And if God were not, nothing. He is entirely other. He basically wants Moses to know I'm not going to give you my name so that you can set me up on the shelf like the rest of the Egyptian gods. No, Israel will not be just one nation among all the other nations with their named God. I am who I am, Moses. I am ultimate reality. When was God born? He was always. Where is God now? He currently is the reality that we inhabit. Where will God be in the future? He always will be. Later in the book of Revelation, it will say that Jesus shows up and he, they name him the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Every single thing in the entire universe is contingent on this reality that God is. And he wants Moses to know it. In Malachi chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, it should be up behind me. God says this. This is right before the 400 years of silence. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. There's so much packed into that, but let me try my best. Because I am, you're not destroyed, Jacob. He's telling the people of Israel, You break the covenant over and over and over and over again. But because I am who I am and I never change and I never break covenant, you exist, you stay, you're preserved, you're not destroyed because I am. And that's not just for Israel. That could be taken across all of time, all of human history, every people group, every person. Because God is, we are not consumed. You know why we woke up this morning? It wasn't because you ate leafy vegetables last night. 
and you know, you're healthy. I'm happy about your health. I'm just telling you that's not the primary reason you're still sticking around on this rock. You know why? Because God is. You know why the sun came up, even though it was a little chilly? Because he is. The Bible says it like this, that the sun rises at his word and sets at his word. He says to come up and it comes up. He says to go down and he does it every day. And the son gladly does it because God says it to be so. I heard one pastor once say, the reason that Jesus said Lazarus come forth and named him is because if he said come forth and didn't say Lazarus, everybody else would have come out of the tombs. Because when he says it, it is. Now, what does that mean for us? To know God as he truly is and for who he is and precisely as he is and as he has revealed himself is to be foundationally centered in the truest sense of that word. You cannot understand your life truly unless you start with knowing who God is. You cannot live your life fully unless you start with knowing who God is. You cannot relate to your fellow man rightly unless you start with knowing who God truly is. One of the reasons that I think our generation so easily trifles with the word of God and tries to change it to our own whim is because we have forgotten that God is who he is and we must form around his reality. And if we find ourselves changing who God is and what God has said, we are not worshiping God as he is, but the idols like Egypt's idols. Like Jacob, we have idols in the cupboards of our minds and hearts, the things that we've created that we worship because we've changed what God has said into what we think is true. I always want to challenge us. If your God does not disagree with you ever, you may not have the God of the Bible. You may have a figment of your imagination. The God of the Bible confronts us, challenges us, calls us to himself and says, I am holy and totally other. If you find yourself struggling with the Bible, I want to encourage you to say, of course you do, because we're not like him. Now, what you do next, it may be the most important thing you do in your whole life. Because if when you say that I disagree with the Bible, then you start to write your own, you're in trouble. Because you can write your own Bible just about as much as you could create your own world. It will be about that successful. I want you, as, as a case study, go to Galveston, start making castles in the sand. That's what you're doing whenever you try to make your own Bible. It's decent at best for Instagram, and then it's washed away. God stands, and his word will be forever. Okay. If this is true, the wheels of time and space themselves, they turn according to this simple reality that God is. And this provides all the basis for the wonderful gospel to break through. I have only a little bit of time, but I want to read to you out of John chapter number eight. If you'll turn there, um, and as you're turning there, I'll kind of catch you up on the story. John chapter number eight, starting verse 40. So we're going to kind of start in the middle of a story. Jesus is in a conversation with the Pharisees. It's a, it's a little heated to be expected, right? This happens often. Um, they're questioning Jesus because they say, hey, you make a lot of claims, but, but you don't have anybody testifying and giving witness that you really are who you say you are. Now, this is them appealing to the Jewish law, basically saying they need two witnesses to justify for you to have this kind of authority. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus' response is, the Father and the Spirit testify that I am true. They did this at the baptism of Christ. But even beyond that, there are many examples of people testifying to the miracles that Christ did that would justify 
the words that he's speaking authoritatively, but they always say these people are liars. The Pharisees won't accept their testimony. And so this, basically this argument continues to get more and more and more and more heated. We're going to pick it up at its apex, okay? I want to start in verse number 40, John chapter 8, verse number 40. I'm sorry, verse number 48. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> okay, that's like, I don't know, like a Twitter spat. This is a, this is a hardcore comment to be made. I, I said to the nine, this is like a racial slur, but it's even more than a racial slur. It's like a, it's like a r- racial religious slur all wrapped up into one, hurled at Jesus, calling him a Samaritan like this. And I wish I had time because, man, everything about the Samaritans and the Jews and their differences, it really stems from the talk about Moses at Mount Horeb and, and, and the Ten Commandments. But I can't really get there. So they're attributing Jesus to demonic forces. Watch his response. Verse 49. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now they're getting more mad. He's saying he has the antidote to death. Watch what they say here. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon because Abraham died as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus, undeterred, says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. He says, you say you worship God, but you don't understand who I am. But you have not known him, that he says, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Listen to this line. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Now they're mad. He says that the the father Abraham saw beyond them and saw Christ and rejoiced. Watch this. The Jews said, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Here's the line. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus didn't mix up grammar there. That wasn't a stutter. That wasn't a mistake. Right? Because if you said before Abraham was, I was. No, before Abraham was, I am. He knows what he's saying. The Jews know what he's saying. Here's why I know this. Listen to verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They know what he's saying, and they want to kill him for it. He knows what he's saying, and he knew they would. So what's he saying? He's saying, I am the self-same God who revealed himself to Moses in the bush. My existence predates Abraham, it predates Isaac, it predates Jacob, it predates Joseph, it predates Moses, it predates David. Before they all were, I am there. I am who I am. He is the fullness of God dwelling bodily. He is the all-consuming fire of God behind the suit of skin, the flesh. In his eyes in Revelation, it says you see the flame of fire and yet his body is not consumed. He is the very God of gods. Every single particulate of the Godhead dwelled in him bodily, and he came and manifest himself amongst us. He is the greater burning bush. You see, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, if they were to touch the mountain of God, they would die. 
Instead, Jesus shows up, and at his touch, he doesn't make living people die. He makes dead people come alive. At the touch of Jesus, he does not stricken people with sickness. Instead, he makes sick people well. At the touch of Jesus and at the sound of his voice, they do not run away and cover their ears like the children of Israel did when God spoke. Instead, at the sound of Christ's voice, children come and sit on his lap to hear him speak. Jesus is the very plan of God made manifest to us. Sinful people like you and me are welcomed into his presence. And hear me on this, and more. Not only are we welcomed into the presence of God, he intends to make his presence dwell within us. We had this awesome question at Providence Road Academy a few Sundays ago. The question was, we were talking about this particular portion. And the question was, why is it that the Old Testament saints seem to have this very intimate relationship with God, whereas in the New Testament you don't see that as prominently? So you see these miraculous things like God, Moses speaks with God like a friend or um, you know, Abraham's having these amazing moments with the angels of the Lord uh, dreams. In the New Testament, you see some of that, but you don't see it as much. And then the real question was like, we don't see it very much at all in our lifetime. The gospel message is Jesus telling us that God and his purposes are for us to experience him in his fullness more deeply than the Old Testament saints. Because whereas the Old Testament saints had to come once a year to a temple through a priest to experience his presence, we get to experience God's presence daily through the high priest that is Christ. And check this out. And you are now the temple. Now he has made it so that his presence might dwell in you and not in golden brick pillars and not in badger skin in the wilderness, but in you. Christ died that God the Holy Spirit might dwell in us, that you and I would be like Jesus was, the bush that was consumed or that was on fire but not consumed. The Christian life is meant to be something like this, that we are living a life so profoundly submitted to God that others would turn aside like Moses did and say, what's going on with these people? They are on fire but not consumed. God's with them but they're not dead. God's living in them, but they're not disintegrating. What is up with these people? This is why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned and said to them, you are the light of the world. Eight times Jesus will say in the gospels, I am, I am, I am, I am. Seven of them are very distinct. The eighth is when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and they ask, which one of you is Jesus of Nazareth? And he responds, I am he. And they all fall on their backs because of the power of his statement. Jesus is the fulfillment of the I am. There's a quote from John Wesley, a famous revivalist preacher, and they asked him, what is the secret to your sermons that make them so powerful? And he said, I asked God to light me on fire and people come from all over to watch me burn. That is the life of the believer, the bush that is on fire but not consumed, that God himself might dwell in us and we might not undone. And so I want to invite you to this. This morning is not a very easily applicable, it's simply applicable, but not easily applicable. My invitation is this, let us like Moses turn aside and see the glory of the I am this morning in our worship. Just what do we have, 15 minutes or so to turn aside. And as we sing, and as we take of the body and of the bread, 
in the body and the bread and the blood and the juice to turn aside and say, I want to experience your glory. I want to know you this way. And let's see what the Lord might do in that moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess to you that (laughs) this word is too wonderful for me. But I also just want to say, thank you, my God, that you are who you are. That right now, none of my frailties will change who you are. That when I sin, you stay the same. Your disposition towards me is good. That when I fail, you never fail. That when, when I'm discouraged, your purposes prevail. That when I suffer, Lord, your purposes are sure. And so I pray that for those under the sound of my voice. Would you now sweep through this body and bring your presence of great healing and life? The great I am, we submit to you. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen.